0: Hi, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman, or you may know me as Quark from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. You're listening to Trek Untold.
1: Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today's guest needs no introduction whatsoever, but I'm going to give him one anyway. If you ask him, he's the man who originally ruined the Frangi, but according to fans like me, he also greatly redeemed them and was part of making them into a very unique and memorable species in Star Trek. Trekkies know him best as Quark from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but underneath all of that makeup, he's good ol' Armin Shimmerman. While Quark is certainly his most popular and recognizable role in the Star Trek franchise, Armin appeared three other times before that character ever came to be. He debuted in the last Outpost from Season 1 of The Next Generation, which was also the first time the Ferengi were ever shown on screen. And as you'll hear today, Armin has some mixed feelings about that. He was also the Betazoid gift box that Luxana Troy sent over to the Enterprise in the opening act of the episode Haven, also part of Season 1, and was a Ferengi once more in the episode Peak Performance, alongside David L. Lander, who many of you may remember as Squiggy from *Laverne and Shirley. But beyond Star Trek, Armin has been in dozens upon dozens of other shows and films, including appearances in Sledgehammer, Who's the Boss?, Alien Nation, Married with Children, Seinfeld, Stargate SG-1, The Tick, Boston Legal, Warehouse 13, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Castle, and many, many more. He's also lent his voice to characters in cartoons and video games, including Ben 10, Justice League Unlimited, The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, Star Wars The Old Republic, The Mass Effect series, Batman the Brave and the Bold, Regular Show, and Bioshock, which we're going to be spending some time talking about today too. But most recently, he's been continuing his VO work in the Ratchet and Clank series as Dr. Nefarious, so look out for him, or perhaps listen for him, in the new Rift Apart video game that just came out. But these days, Armin spends a good portion of his time teaching Shakespeare as an adjunct professor and writing novels, including his newest one, Illyria, Betrayal of Angels, which is the first in a trilogy. If you've been listening to the show for the past few weeks, you may have seen some of those ads with Armin pop up promoting the new book, but today you're going to get the whole story about that, pun intended. So pour yourself a glass of whatever you're drinking today, it's on the house, because we have the best bartender in the galaxy with us, as well as one of the most fascinating and diversely talented performers from the Star Trek universe, who, well, also happens to be a really great human being. Of course, it goes without saying, he was a pretty great Frankie too, but you can let him tell you about that in a few minutes. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, why write it? Feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest subscribing leaving ratings leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show and if you're already following us or supporting us on patreon or have bought some merch a big big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can thank you for the help there's a lot of star trek podcasts out there and i'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. Hello, welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining me on the opposite side of the screen. You can see we're joined by Mr. Armin Shimmerman. You guys may know him best as Quark from Deep Space Nine, but he's been in so many other things. We're going to talk about several of those today. We're to, we've got a whole bunch of questions from our listeners today for you, in fact, Armin. Uh, but first things first, I actually want to just say that, uh, unrelated story to anything, my very first Star Trek convention was the Mission New York in 2016. Mm. And uh, at that point, I wasn't really doing autographs very much. And I remember, I think it was Sunday morning. I got online and I was going to go see you and I was in line. You got there early and you were so friendly and amazing and chatting to all the fans from your table. And I got so intimidated. I just ran right the heck out of there. (laughs) So now I can spend an hour with you trying to not be intimidated. So good luck with that.
0: Good luck with that. You shouldn't have been intimidated. I like talking to people and uh, I'm sorry we didn't chat then, but I'm glad we're chatting now.
1: I'm, I'm very grateful to get this time with you, especially today. Uh, So first things first, you have a new book coming out, Illyria, Betrayal of Angels. This is the first in a trilogy. Uh, So let's spend some time discussing that book. So first things first, just can you give us uh, what the overview of this book is about?
0: Sure. I am, uh, besides being an actor on TV, I am a Shakespeare scholar. I teach Shakespeare around Los Angeles. I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California, where I teach Shakespeare to actors. So Shakespeare has been part of my life since 19, before you were born, 1970. No, yes, 1970, since 1970. Um, So this book is a period mystery uh, that takes place in 1583 in England. It deals with two historical characters. One is very familiar. The other one is perhaps not so familiar. The more important of the two is a man named Dr. John Dee. He helped create the calendar as we know it today. The other historical character was a little known playwright called William Shakespeare, who lived at that time as well. And the two of them team up to investigate the loyalty and allegiance of a particular count that lives in the English Channel. And lo and behold, that count turns out to be uh, Count Orsino from Shakespeare's play Twelfth Night. Now, Shakespeare, of course, hasn't written the play as yet, but uh, the supposition is uh, going on this mission uh, he will eventually write about the mission and he will call it Twelfth Night in a little a bit the way that uh, John Watson writes about the missions that turn out to be the stories about Sherlock Holmes.
1: This is basically the adventures of teenage William Shakespeare, which is pretty interesting on itself right there.
0: Right. Because no one, no one knows what Shakespeare did it during his teenage years. We have no idea how he got from Stratford to London. He did, of course, but how he did it, no one knows. And so this is my take on that story. And so you
1: actually began writing this book quite some time ago. You were still filming DS9 when you were doing this, right? That is a heck of a dedication.
0: Um, I had met a man named Michael Scott, a wonderful science fiction writer who I collaborated on another book about John Dee. And um, he gave me the idea of, of doing this book. It was going to be a series of novels all dealing with the different plays that Shakespeare wrote. Um, So I started writing in my trailer and just, uh, Things didn't always turn out that I had time to write. And my TV career and my acting career in the theater just took up a lot of my time. So it took 20 years or more to complete this novel. And uh, I'm very happy to say that it is completed. I call it a novel, but it's really a trilogy. It's really three novels. All three books are written. Um, It's just a matter of when they come out. But the first one is coming out November the 5th.
1: And it is a piece of historical fiction. It's very fascinating to read. Uh, You were kind enough to send me a few chapters in advance. I got to check it out. Uh, You know, it's my first time actually seeing your writing. I know you've written before, but this is my first time seeing it. And, uh, you know, I know my my input doesn't necessarily mean the most, but I just thought it was really, really awesome. Uh, I I thought it was very excellent. In fact, um, the amount of research that you did, I've heard you've also talked about that on the the Seventh Roll podcast. Uh, Just the sheer amount of research you put into things like architecture, food, uh, but especially the language too. I mean, it all really shines through this. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the research process because, man, this is, this is really some in-depth stuff here.
0: Well, thank you. Um, as I said, I'm a Shakespeare scholar and I'm a teacher as well. So uh, my entire life has been dedicated to reading about Elizabethan times. It's not just Shakespeare. I read about all the people that, that lived at that time, John Dee being one of them. And um, so everything that I have researched is either for my teaching or, in the case of this novel, to tell the story. Uh, So I'm fascinated by the way they lived and uh, the the conflicts that they had. Uh, It's a little like taking a time machine. It's as close as I can get to being in a time machine and going back in time and seeing what that life was like. Ironically, one of the things that I never was able to conceive of before, because it was never part of our reality, we are now living through. They lived through plagues. Um, at that time, the theater was closed down for long periods of time when the plague hit. Uh, obviously, the whole world is now living through a plague as well.
1: Yeah, who knew we'd be living through basically mirror times of that period, but hey, right. that's life if, today. If
0: 30 people died in London of the plague, the theaters were shut down. Wow. So um, uh, politically speaking, I, uh, I'm sorry that we have to close the theaters down, but, but they did shut things down when the plague hit. And uh, perhaps uh, we here in the United States should follow that uh, course of action. Yeah,
1: I I agree completely better safe than sorry. Uh, And, you know, just on the topic of your writing, too, I think one of the things I really enjoyed was the personality you put even in just the descriptions of actions. And uh, I found that really fascinating that I feel like that's very much the actor that you are basically putting these actions on them and and giving them such personality. Like uh, I was reading off the top of my head, I think it was the second chapter uh, with Nicholas Font. And uh, you're describing him having a uh, meeting with somebody and just the way they're both interacting, the way they're eating, the way they're drinking. It all has a personality that rings true to them. So uh, I'm curious, you know, like was that the actor inside you giving essentially the truth of the scene onto them?
0: I would imagine so. Um, I've been fortunate enough to read uh, many scripts, whether they're from the theater or whether they're from television, and where we get a little bit of description, which always helps the actor's imagination. So I, I was very much interested in action, it's a very fast-moving novel, as far as I'm concerned. You turn the pages very quickly to find out what's happening. And just along the way, you also get educated about the period as well. Uh, but that's tangential. That should be subliminal. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm fascinated with action uh, because that's what an actor does. When when you're learning lines, you're thinking, well, what do I do along with saying these lines? What, what is the action? What is the intention? Uh, very much part of the actor's craft, and I tried to imbue that in the novel as well.
1: So we have a bunch of questions from our listeners today about Star Trek, but uh, a lot of them are very much about the process. I wanted to ask you about the process more so of writing your book, because as we mentioned, it's been an undertaking for decades. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in how you put the pieces together, especially for a book that has taken so many years to finally come together.
0: Um, well, I had an overriding story arc that I was always in the back of my head. It took years to complete, but I, I sort of knew where I was going. I was blessed with the fact that uh, some of the characters in the novel, the non-historical characters, were all ones created by Shakespeare. So I had an inkling of who they were. Uh, The historical people I've studied, as I said, forever, so I know a little bit about them as well. But the process is very simple. Writing, rewriting, rewriting, writing, rewriting, polishing, rewriting, writing. That is the process. The process is uh, you keep looking at it, making it better. It's like a performance on stage. You start out opening night and by the time you've finished to closing night, uh, the performance has gotten better because you've honed, you polished, you sculpted your performance. That's what I did with my writing as well. And of course, there's a lot of research. Uh, and sometimes I would write a sentence and that sentence would, would take on enormous importance that I didn't think it was going to have. And I followed that sentence and where it took me uh, for a period of time.
1: So now as someone who teaches Shakespeare, not only loves Shakespeare, but teaches about it too. Uh, for folks like myself, you know, I've I found that he's, I appreciate it, but sometimes it's hard to get into. Uh, yeah. So what, what do you do to get your students to really fall in love with the work?
0: Good. So uh, one of the reasons it's hard to follow Shakespeare, either in the reading or sometimes in watching a production is that Shakespeare, from the first day of school to the last day of school, studied a course called rhetoric, which is the way you put words together in order to form an argument. It's called rhetoric. Rhetoric is the way you put words together. And if you don't study uh, the principles of rhetoric, or if you're not familiar with them, then then the, the way Shakespeare puts words together is unfamiliar, and we have a hard time grasping it. The moment you realize... There's a a rhyme and reason to why he's put the words together the way he has. And it's not just about verse. It's certainly not about verse. And it's not about iambic pentameter. It's just about how you put words together to make them memorable. Um, And if we look at the the language through that prism, Shakespeare becomes exponentially clearer. Um, My actors in my classes, have all marveled that when they started out, they felt the same way you did, that it was a foreign country and and they didn't speak the language. Um, But after learning the principles of rhetoric, and there aren't that many to learn, um, all of a sudden it made more sense. And more importantly, because they're actors, their performance were clearer to an audience, that all of a sudden lines that just didn't make sense before are now making sense. Now, that said, I'm not going to gainsay that that there aren't some words and some ideas that are unfamiliar because it's 400 years since he wrote those plays. And and I would imagine that anyone 400 years from now watching a Jay Leno program might have the same problems because of the references made to to, uh, uh, current events.
1: But I will say, you know, references aside that are in the book, uh, it is pretty easy to read and understand, you know, for folks who are worried that, you know, it's going to be Shakespeare and it's going to be spoken Elizabethan English. uh, No, I mean, it it is, but it's not. This isn't like you're reading Clockwork Orange here. This is something you could easily get into and understand.
0: Right. I was very careful to give the taste of the Elizabethan language without confounding the reader. Yeah,
1: I think you definitely have accomplished that. So, you know, congratulations on that. And uh, and just because we are here too, we're talking about your books. Uh, your first book that you did was The Merchant Prince. And for folks who aren't familiar with that, can you tell us a little bit about that too?
0: Sure. Um, uh, it's The Merchant Prince. It's all. It. The lead character is again Doctor John D. A fascinating uh, Elizabethan for me but really the lead character in that is, is not John D the lead character is Quark. Um, and that's what the publisher wanted. And that's what I wrote. Um, it was Quark inside the clothes of John D and, and, um, it's, it's a science fiction novel, whereas the one I just wrote is a, is a period mystery. And, uh, and in science fiction novels, you can do whatever you want as long as it slightly makes sense. Um, but, but it, And there's a lots of Star Trek references in The Merchant Prince, uh, gags and allusions and, and stuff like that. But it takes place in the 23rd century. And um, it, too, is three novels, a trilogy. But, but it really is Quark um, uh, dealing with the future. With some Elizabethan references, uh, but not very many.
1: Oh, that sounds really cool. And for folks who do want to check it out, we're going to have links to all that in the show notes. So make sure you guys head over there if you want to read any of Armin's books. And The Lyre of a Trail of Angels comes out November 5th. This episode should be out by now. So in that case, you know, we'll have links to everything. And I believe you got autographed copies also available through your publisher, correct?
0: That is correct. I will give a caveat, which is I'm not sure that after November the 5th, uh, there are autographed uh, possibilities. There may be, I'm not saying there isn't, but I'm not sure. So that, that's my caveat. That's my disclaimer.
1: Alright, so I'm gonna to have to retroactively do some work. So you guys are gonna have probably already seen me post about the book in advance. Now you know why. <laughs> so Mr. Shimmerman, let's jump into some Trek talk now, if you don't mind here. As I mentioned, our audience has a ton of questions for you. Um, but I'd like to start things off with a question I ask all of my guests, and that's what is your first memory of Star Trek?
0: Oh, I you know, I would tell you, it was a very meaningful episode. It's from the original series. Um I I started watching almost from the first day. I know I never missed an episode when I was a young man. Uh, always made sure that I was in front of the TV set when the episodes were playing. But, but the one that I remember the most, and I remember many of them because we've all seen all of them over and over again. And forgive me for not remembering the title, but it's, um, it's of the episode where the Enterprise visits a planet where there are two species one is black on the right side. One is white on the left side, um, and I don't remember that one. But that that was not only my first memory, but that's the one that really struck me as meaningful. Um, and I I was already a fan, but that made me more of a fan and a, and a great advocate for Star Trek. In fact, uh, I'm I'm quark because. When I heard they were doing a new series, Deep Space Nine, I did everything in my power to be seen for that and to uh, get considered for the part of the Ferengi.
1: And that episode is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Very, very well-known episode. And yeah, since you mentioned you've been a Ferengi for quite some time before, I actually do want to discuss a little bit about your first appearances because you were essentially among the first group of actors to portray the Ferengi and they've seen quite a change. So uh, really to kick things off, I'd like to ask what it was like for you to be in the makeup chair for the very first time having to put on the Ferengi makeup.
0: Well, the first time took about four to five hours. Uh, I had the head of the department, uh, Michael Westmore, putting the makeup on. Uh, it was claustrophobic, slightly, slightly, because they have to put the, the, um, the mask up. Um, it's a mask, but it's not the mask you're, we're thinking of. They have to put a plaster Paris um, mask over you to, to create the form for which the, the rubber later will be molded on Michael was, uh, terrifically, uh, conciliatory and nice and patient. And when he sealed up all my breathing passages, except for the two straws in my nose, he held my hand for 20 minutes, uh, while I endured that, that wasn't so bad because it turns out that claustrophobia is not one of my problems. And, um, though I was aware that I couldn't really breathe as well as I normally could, uh, Michael was there who assured me always that, that if anything got really bad, if I felt really panicky, that he would bust the mold and and let me out. So, and he never left my side. Uh, he was terrific that way. Now, at that time, and I think I'm correct about this. Uh, there were seven pieces to this Ferengi makeup. And actually there should have been an eighth piece and we'll get into that in a second. Um, And uh, so I had to endure uh, the seven pieces being put on. And that's what took four to five hours uh, originally. Certainly in Deep Space Nine, we got it down to two hours, but um, they also had uh, eliminated or had cut it down to two pieces. Now, what about that eighth piece? Okay. Those of you who are Star Trek fans, the next time you see Quark, you'll notice that he doesn't have a flange in the back of his head. Why do the other Ferengi have flanges and Quark doesn't? And here's the answer to that. In that first makeup uh, appliance session, uh, we put everything on, the seven pieces, got it all done. Uh, They sent me back to my trailer and uh, lo and behold, the makeup department and the costume department hadn't communicated enough to realize that my that my collar of my shirt didn't extend to where the makeup ended in the back of my head. So my hair and my neck was showing. And of course, neither one of those was orange. And, um, and so they rushed me back to Michael Westmore to the makeup ahead. And uh, he got out a, uh, one of those pieces of plastic that you now see on many of the Ferengi and the stapler gun. And he just <laughs> stapled that to the back of my head. And, um, and that was the way to cover it up. When I became Quark, Michael said to me, you know, we never did make the back of that head for you guys. So let's create a piece uh, which was part and parcel of the helmet of the entire piece. Um, so it extended down below the collar of my my wardrobe.
1: And that first time that you were the Frankie too, I wanted to ask about the portrayal of the characters because, you know, as we've seen in Deep Space Nine, when we get to Quark, Quark is a savvy businessman. First episode, the Frankie are basically jumping around like spider monkeys. It's very animated, very physical role also. So again, here you are wearing all of this makeup and now you've got to jump around to soundstage. Uh, I mean, that's, that just sounds like a very intense day.
0: I don't got to jump around. I stupidly, foolishly, uh, uh, unwisely and uncreatively jumped around. Those were my stupid, stupid, stupid choices. And my agenda playing Quark was to try to eradicate the memory of that performance on Last Outpost that so denigrated the species. The Ferengi were meant to be the next Klingons. They were never meant to be comics. They were always meant to be threats. I failed miserably, as my friend would say. Um, And and so I am so embarrassed to the world. I apologize for that performance. It sucked. Um, And and Quark was my attempt to make up for the bad doing that I had done.
1: As weird as it was seeing the Frankie in the last outpost, I still enjoyed watching them and seeing how different they were. And it made it more interesting when we saw them again later on, just how they've already begun to change since meeting the well, Federation. I had
0: set the bar so low, any improvement would be an improvement.
1: Well, it was still wonderful to see. And uh, there is one other role. You know, you did play the Frankie a few other times on Next Gen, but the one other role I do want to ask you about in the time we have today is when you appeared again in the episode Haven. And you were Loxana Troy's magical talking luggage. Haven came first. Haven came first,
0: really, if you shot Haven first. Yeah. Haven came first. I would not have been a Ferengi had I not been in Haven. I would not be sitting here in front of you today had I not accepted that tiny little role on Next Generation as the box in Haven. One flows to the next, to the next, to the next, to eventually being quark and sitting here.
1: That's so interesting, because to me especially, you know, like that whole talking luggage thing, it was like something out of a out of a Jean Cocteau film. Uh, it just seemed so bizarre even to have in Star Trek to have that thing in there. I'm curious, what is an audition like to get a role as a piece of talking luggage?
0: I don't remember the audition. I do remember, I've, I've told you already, I was a huge fan. And that's part of the story. And I will get to that in a second. Uh, so I was delighted to be uh, there. I don't remember the audition. I do remember the the uh, makeup process and being attached to the box, I think that took a good five hours as well. And uh, the actual shooting process couldn't have lasted longer than fifteen minutes. Uh, I just uh, they put me um, in the uh, in the beaming chamber, and uh, they took out the bottom, and I I got in, and then we put it so that just my chest uh, was showing. And, and, uh, uh, and we did it in 15 minutes. Um, I, I will tell you a story if you don't mind. I'm sure you want to hear stories. So this one I've tell, told a couple of times, but I'll repeat it. So at the time that I did Haven, which was the first of the Star Trek shows that I did, episodes that I did, I was recurring on another science fiction show called Beauty and the Beast. And uh, I had auditioned for Star Trek, was ecstatic that they had cast me, Uh, in Star Trek, because as I said, I was a huge fan. And I got some bad news from my agent a couple of days before we shot the Haven episode. And they said, it turns out that that Beauty and the Beast needs you the same day that you need to shoot Haven. And he said, so, of course, you have to give up the Star Trek, which was a very small part, uh, to play the recurring part that I had on Beauty and the Beast. However, I was a huge Star Trek fan, and and I was not happy about losing those couple lines on Next Generation. I had a huge fight with my agent, a huge fight with my agent. But because I'm the client, I eventually won that fight, and we had to tell Beauty and the Beast that uh, I was not going to appear that day, which they took in stride. I did Haven. And then I believe it was two or three weeks after shooting Haven, they called me in for that first Ferengi episode, Last Outpost. And I truly believe the reason I got cast, two reasons. One was my height. Uh, I was the right height for a Ferengi. But two, I had just worked for them and they liked what I did on Haven. And so uh, they gave me the part of one of the first four Ferengi on Last Outpost. But, but if I had listened to my agent, a very good agent, and a very smart agent, I would, again, not be sitting here in front of you today.
2: Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights the bridge of the enterprise e for your playmates figures or any other item from countless species and ships from the star trek universe all products are 3d printed in the usa and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback to learn more about their products visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on facebook at facebook.com slash triple fiction productions triple fiction productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before.
3: This is Lee NF, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, soon to get a promotion to captain on Lower Decks. Some of you may know me from my acting career, but a lot of you probably don't know me from my charity. It's called DriveByDougaders.org. Myself and a bunch of teenage boys from the block, we all jump into my SUV every Sunday and we drive to the outskirts of town and right from the car window, we deliver water and wipes and protein and tarps and socks to our adult homeless who truly need it right now. I don't know if you know this, but in LA, there's not one single public bathroom and not one single water fountain for anyone. And out there in Skid Row, there's 11,000 people in 20 square blocks. So our water and our wipes are really needed. We go out every week and you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook or right on the website, drivebydogaters.org and throw in any amount, even a small amount is great. For instance, you can go on the website and when you click on donate, you can see where three bucks is going and what your money is going towards or where 17 bucks is going. Sometimes it's for cheese, sometimes it's for socks, sometimes it's for just what's really needed, which is water. Any holiday donations you might be deciding where to relegate, please consider drivebydouganders.org. It's also completely a tax write-off, and every little tiny, tiny bit helps, anywhere from $3 to $3 million. Your money goes directly to those who need it, and we have no overhead, no agenda, pure giving. And stay tuned for the animated version of Sonia Gomez. On lower decks, coming soon. drivebydo We drive by, and what we do? What do we do? We do good. Thanks so much. Hope to see you at my website. Bye.
2: We now return to Truck Untold.
1: Armin, we have a bunch of questions from our audience today, and I want to kick things off here with really what was like one of the most popular things people were asking uh, and that they want to know about is the makeup process. And we've already talked a little bit about that. But just to kind of follow up on it, you know, I have a question here from uh, Warp Factor ZJ, and she asked on Twitter uh, about the prosthetic lobes and if you could hear through them, uh, if that caused any challenges on set. And I'm going to kind of just bum rush you with a few different questions about the makeup because there's just so many. Sure. Uh, but you know, to follow up with that, too, we have another listener named uh, Wojtek Raiba. And they want to know how sweat-inducing the Frankie makeup was. So, how sweaty and how hard was it to hear with all that stuff on?
0: Well, your, your questioners have answered their questions absolutely right. So, to answer the first one and, and expound a little bit upon that, it um, was it was a, a, a two piece piece of prosthetics. There was the mask that covered the nose and the cheeks. The eyes shone through, and then there was the helmet that sat just above my eyebrows, went over the head included the ears, and as we said before, included the neck that hadn't been there before. So um, that took about two hours to put on this. The first month or so, it took about two to three hours. But Karen Westerfield, who must be mentioned in this conversation, the brilliant makeup artist I had from day one to the last day, um, was able to get it down to two hours. Karen Westerfield is really the... um, the genius behind the maker, besides Michael designing it. But um, could I hear? No, no, I couldn't. Uh, Was I completely deaf? No, but my hearing capabilities were reduced, I would say 75%. And and in fact, if I was in a room with a number of people all speaking at the same time, um, impossible it was all white noise. I couldn't, I couldn't make out any language, couldn't make out any words whatsoever. So luckily when we shot uh, one person talks at a time in a scene for the most part. And so I could hear them. But if you watch my performances, you'll see, I'm usually am staring at the lips because uh, that helps me listen. I it, I, I knew what the, the cues were and I knew what my cue was, what the last word in the line was. And so I'm. I'm looking, I'm listening certainly but I'm also watching the lips to make sure that I hear what I hear. now uh, as far as the sweat. Oh my God. Yes. Puddles, pools, lakes of sweat because the neck was completed. Everything was sealed. Everything was sealed Uh, because it's a, it's somewhat of a a physical process to be under all that makeup and under all that costume and under all those lights. So yes, uh, I, I would sweat a great deal. And at the end of the day, poor Karen Westerfield, when she took the head off, was usually drenched by the sweat that had built up in the head, uh, which only made the inside of the head that much hotter because I had hot sweat surrounding uh, the pores of my face uh, because the sweat had nowhere to go.
1: You know, one of the things I've noticed with a lot of the actors on Star Trek who had to wear the heavy prosthetics and the heavy makeup, like yourself and uh, Renee as Odo as well was that you guys would do so many little things to help you emote, because you're, you're basically losing a lot of parts of your face that normally would be responsible for emoting in a scene. Instead, you have to use just the corners of your mouth as much as you can, or just little small eye movements, and I found that very interesting. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you find that physicality to do those little movements that make so much to a scene?
0: Sure. In the first couple of episodes of Deep Space Nine, I was doing a lot of little movements to help uh, create the idea that I was an alien. Um, And the story I like to tell was, I think, in about the third or fourth episode, I was in my trailer taking a piss and uh, standing in front of a mirror uh, that was over the sink. And I looked in the mirror and saw this alien staring back at me and went and had an epiphany, which was, I don't have to play an alien. Uh, Look, I am an alien. This makeup does all the work. I I don't have to do anything to convince anyone that I'm not human. Um, the makeup does all of that. So I began to not worry so much about little ticks or things like that, which I did too much of on The Last Outpost, um, and just began to realize, just do what you normally do and and make make what an actor would call specific choices. If I'm specific about what I'm saying, it will show up Uh, it'll manifest itself in my eyes and in in the corners of my mouth. Um, And and that was pretty much it. Really, it was the epiphany of realizing I don't have to play an alien, I am an alien. And and, uh, that was, I'm very grateful for that because that saved me a lot of bad acting. And and as far as, because I tend to uh, overact a little as an actor because I'm primarily a stage actor, makeup would mute a lot of that the overacting and so it was the right combination of me being an overactor and the makeup muting out the the too much acting
1: yeah i find that interesting because i've spoken to a lot of actors who say when they wear the makeup they go through that same process they get lost in that alien that they're becoming Um, but on the other hand i've also spoken to a lot of actors who they say they lose themselves and they can't really work on another show for next day or two because they're so lost and trying to regain who they are did you have that problem, especially the beginning never. of playing these Frangies? No,
0: that's, uh, that's a lovely comment from whoever you've been talking to, but I've never experienced that whatsoever. Uh, maybe because as a theater actor, where I often would do more than one play per week, if you were in repertory, the, um, the great thing is to go from character to character. Um, it, perhaps the after effects of wearing makeup might, might cause you some pause the next day. But but no, and, and really my life, my, my career is an example of that. I, I would go back and forth between Star Trek and Buffy constantly. And if I wasn't doing Buffy and I wasn't doing Star Trek, then I was doing Seinfeld or something else. Uh, I reveled in doing as many parts as possible during that time period, all against my contract, by the way. My contract said I couldn't do that. But the powers that be at Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, allowed me to do that no no i never had that problem whatsoever uh I, I i suppose if if you're a real methody actor perhaps you would have that but really um i can't help but tell you that my gut reaction is oh man, it's a load of crap
1: fair enough fair enough i'll take that <laughs> so james patrick would like to know uh if you remember filming the commercial for the playmates star trek d space nine action figures at
0: all I do remember that. I remember that Mark Shepard as more, was there as well. Uh, I um, was flattered that they asked me to do that. Uh, at that time, actually for the entire seven years, we were an ensemble. Though we had a captain, uh, he was part of the ensemble. We all worked as a unit. So to select me as the person to, to be the spokesman for that uh, it was very flattering indeed. Really, I, I think that the, the honor should have gone to Avery and not to me, but I was glad to have
1: it. Well, Quark was a heck of a salesman in that commercial, I got to tell you. And I own all those toys, of course. Uh, I'm curious what you think about your Quark action figure. Did you ever like
0: it? You ever, do you have one? Um, I do have one. Um, as you may or may not know, uh, the action figures are all numbered. Uh, zero, zero, zero. I can't remember how many zeros, but it starts with a one. It actually ends with a one starts with a zero uh to god knows how many um i almost invariably all my action figures say however how many however amount of zeros there are mine always ends in a seven so it's if there's six zeros it's zero 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 zero, seven. so all my action figures have a seven at the end i think what happened is the cast was always given the original set and I was number seven on the, on the call sheet. So uh, I got the seventh action figure. And I assume Avery got the first. And then I got the second. However, we were listed in the call sheet.
1: That's pretty fun, yeah. Did you like how the toy looked? Did you think it actually looked like yourself? No,
0: but <laughs> it's close enough. It's close enough. Um, I must tell you the story. One of my favorites early on in my career going to conventions, Star Trek conventions, Uh, I had the opportunity, glorious opportunity, to be asked by a young man who couldn't have been more than six, almost exactly what you just asked me, although the second part you didn't ask me, but he did. Um, He said, what's it like to be an action figure, doll, and do you ever play with yourself? Um, And which brought the house down. um, And the answer to both is, uh, I don't know what it's like to be an action figure, doll, and perhaps yes to the second part,
1: (laughs) Well, I've been beaten. This interview's over. I can't top that now. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> that was amazing. Now, there's one other appearance too I wanted to mention about uh, Quark, unrelated to being on D Space Nine. That's when you were on Regis and Kathy Lee. Do you remember much about going on that show? I love watching that clip too. That's on YouTube. It's one of my favorite things to just constantly watch again and again.
0: Yeah. Um, again, flattered, honored. Uh, it required a first-class trip to um, to New York, uh, uh, with all the all the perks that come with being treated like a celebrity. Um, however, the, and it was lovely working with the two of them and talking to them was challenging. Um, um, Kathy Lee just kept looking at me as though she was trying to figure out where the seams were. What, how do you put that stuff on you? And she couldn't because Karen's work is so incredibly good, but I must tell you this, should you look at that uh, sequence again, when I come out as Quark and, and, and Karen had the, re- the required two hours to put the makeup on before I appeared on camera so everything was absolutely perfect. However, they told both of us before we went on that I would have to come back in about um 20 minutes as myself. Now, the removal process, which people never ask about, was half the time of the of the putting on process. It was it it took an hour to remove the makeup. They said to us you have to have it off in 20 minutes and he has to come back as himself. This stymied Karen when she thought about it and, uh, and me for that matter. So in order to make that 20 minute deadline, she tossed a bucket of solvent and, and alcohol and isopropyl meristate on me in order to remove the makeup as quickly as could possibly be done. Now, when you see the segment again, when I appear as myself, you may see me just doing that because the fumes from the alcohol still surrounded me and I was inundated with these fumes. And though I'm doing my best to react as though they're not there, Mm -hmm. all I can smell and all I can feel and all I can sense besides their lovely company was the fumes from the alcohol. So it's a little, I'm not drunk but, but it, it, it was overwhelming. It, it, it was like standing over, you know, a, a, a carload of open paint cans, but you, you, you muscle on, you, you do what you can. And, uh, um, and it turns out very well. It turns out very well. Yeah.
1: Now we had a lot of folks who wanted to know more about your relationship with Renee. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people brought up was the episode where Quark and Odo are stuck on a planet together. That's the episode called The Ascent. Um, but I just recently rewatched an episode called Crossfire. Uh, and I think that's honestly like one of my favorite examples of the chemistry that Quark and Odo and that Armin and Renee had on set, uh, because it's a very ep- much episode about exploring Odo's humanity. Um, so I'm curious if you have any memories about working with Renee and uh, the the rapport you guys had on screen together.
0: First, let us all mourn the passing of my good friend, Rene Auberjonois. That was very hard for me, for his family, for my family. We were very, very, very close friends. And, and we became close friends during the shooting of that show. Um, I told you I did theater. Uh, René Auberginois was, and to some extent still is, a prince in the theater. He, he is one of those actors that when you stand on stage, you can't help but be intimidated by. Um, I adore him. Uh, I love him and I miss him. So uh, how did this love affair, this bromance start? Uh, Ironically, we had done a play together prior to working together on Deep Space Nine, where we never, well, barely ever spoke to each other. We were not in any scenes together. And pretty much by the time I was finished acting, he had just begun his role. So we never saw each other on stage either which meant that there wasn't a lot to talk about. And although we nodded at each other in respect, um, there wasn't any rapport between us. Okay. Um, When we started on Deep Space Nine, they very nicely accidentally uh, put us next to each other in the makeup trailer. So his chair was separated from mine by, I think, no more than two to three feet. And because we were both... in the makeup makeup chair for a long period of time, we talked a lot. We talked about ourselves, about our families. We talked about the scene that we were about to do. We would run lines. um, And we began to find, at least I began to find, that we had a lot in common. Uh, Our backgrounds in the theater, our appreciation of the the work that we did, our uh, respect for the artistry of what actors do, Uh, We had, turns out we had many friends in common because we had worked in plays, not together, but people who had worked with us in the plays had worked with each other. Um, And as we began to bond, um, our affection for each other grew and grew and grew and grew. And the writers who were no fools began to see that not only in the dailies, but also as when they came backstage to visit, how close the two of us were. So um, they began to write that into the show as well. But I am blessed that I had not just seven years, because our friendship went on after the show as well. I had all those years uh, to be accounted one of Renee's Mm -hmm. friends.
1: Yeah, I'm very sad. I never got a chance to actually meet him at any conventions beforehand, because he's pretty much, I think, my favorite actor in all the franchise. I just rewatched the episode called The Begotten recently, which is the episode where Odo takes care of a changing baby, uh, and it's the episode where he gets his powers back. Um, But I found it to be one of the most moving episodes that I've seen with Renee in it. And uh, I'm wondering, since you got to be on the set for so many of these episodes, if there was any uh, particular ones that either you were a part of or just one that you were watching from the wings uh, that stood out to you as a very memorable and truthful performance for Renee.
0: Well, it's hard, I, uh, uh, you know, we were talking before, do you ever separate, do, do it takes you time to separate yourself from the role? Uh, oftentimes when I'm watching him as Quark, I'm watching him with Quark's thoughts in my head, which are always somewhat combative, somewhat uh, 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 shifty. So um, um, I, I, I didn't always watch his performance from my point of view, but from my character's point of view. Um, And that sounds really highfalutin, but I'm afraid that is the way I, I I worked, but I would see his performance in episodes and, and was sorry that I didn't stand out in the back and see scenes that I wasn't in stand on set and watch him perform. I must tell you, he never had a false moment in, in all the times that I worked with him. Um, And he always, despite the fact that he was very restricted, not only in the makeup but but the character as well, was a very restrained, uh, uh, self contained performance. Uh, brilliant to watch, um, and yet he was able in that self restraint to show you his love for other people, his admiration for other people, his respect for the law, his respect for the for the for the station that he worked on. Great, great performance. But as I said, he's a prince. He's a prince. And, and <laughs> as it turns out, he actually is a prince. Uh, he, he has royal blood.
1: So I've got a question from Sharon Schlemit Berman, who uh, wanted to ask about the Jewish representation of Frangies. Ah. Uh, given the anti Semitic overtones that are perceived about the Frangie characters, uh, she wondered if your character did anything to uh, challenge those stereotypes. And the reason I asked this question is, in fact, uh, at that first convention I went to in 2016, someone in the audience asked you that exact thing, and you had a really wonderful answer for it, and uh, I'd love to just share it with my listeners today as well.
0: Sure. I have, as as Matthew just said, uh, been asked several times about, uh, were the Ferengi a uh, representation of the Jews? Um, and I first, I would point out that almost all of the actors who played Ferengi were Jewish, I'm Jewish. Uh Ira is Jewish, who, who wrote, was one of the primary writers of the Ferengi episodes. Rick Berman is Jewish, uh, the executive producer. Um, so we certainly were not denigrating Jews. That that was nowhere in our perception. Now, the story I think Matthew is alluding to is that oftentimes when I'm asked that question, the response I give, and I think this is what you're looking for, is that when I travel abroad, um the same question is asked, but the reference is always different. When I went to Australia, the uh, Australian people there asked me, are the Ferengi the Chinese? When I went to England once, somebody asked me, are the Ferengi the Irish? Um, when I went uh, to, the, uh, to Italy, someone asked me, uh, are the Ferengi the Arabic nation?" So what I've come to learn is what the Ferengi were was what I call the other. The other group of people that are always a minority that live in a society where they are the minority. And they have different cultures, different aspects, oftentimes different looks than the majority of the people. So, no, um, we were not in any way advocating anti-Semitic behavior. But we were part of that group that is the other, that are frowned upon. And uh, and if you see it as, as the Jewish nation, um, that's because perhaps that's the other group uh, in in our culture.
1: Yeah, Thank you for sharing that answer. And, you know, again, that was my first convention ever for Star Trek. And of all the panels I attended, that was to this day still the one response that has just stayed with me. It's been really important. And, uh, you know, thank you for that really great sentiment about that. Uh, On a lighter note, I have a question from Andrea Levine, and she wants to know, based on your appearance as Principal Snyder on Buffy, what kind of principal would Quark have been? Uh, He would not
0: have been Snyder, not in any ways. I always uh, describe the difference between the two characters that I was playing nearly every week or every other week. Quark was a people person. He liked people. He liked to be around people. He liked conversation. Uh, he, He liked to see people smile. Uh, Snyder was just the opposite. Snyder uh, would have been happy in a cave by himself, uh, you know, uh, and in dim light. He didn't like people, He certainly didn't like children uh, or teenagers. And uh, so the idea of what kind of principle Quark would have been like, uh, I think if Quark had been principal of Sunnydale High, uh, uh, all hell would have broken loose if you pardon the pun
1: just on the, uh, the topic of other roles you played because you've had such a prolific career and i wish we had time to talk about so many other things today but uh the one that i just discovered and I, I don't know how i didn't know this but i just learned that you were the voice of andrew ryan in bioshock and i mean i'm normally i think excellent at picking out actors voices in cartoons and video games and all these things i i know them like that but yours even listening to it again but not that long before we just did our interview together it doesn't even sound a thing like you it's amazing uh would you kindly explain to us a little bit about being Andrew Ryan?
0: Sure. Like the shows I've already mentioned, and there are lots of others, and we haven't talked about theater at all, really. Um, the reason I don't sound like Andrew Ryan is that they turned up the bass um, on my voice quality. So my voice, which is, tends to be a little high to begin with, they got rid of all of that and just used the baser qualities of my voice. Um, that aside, everything else is me. And, uh, and the reason I believe they chose me for Andrew Ryan is my rather extensive Shakespearean background as an actor. And so I was able to approach that, that wonderfully poetic language uh, in a classical way. Um, and so it's it's very rare, either in games or on TV, to have that really classical approach to language. And perhaps my study of rhetoric, perhaps my study of, of the period, all infuses itself in, in that. E- even though Andrew Ryan is in the future, not in the past, but, but he senses himself as a, as a sort of Shakespearean character, And um, that's what I did. I I also must say uh, they were some of the speeches that Andrew Ryan has are some of the most phenomenal speeches I've ever performed. And that's even including most of the Shakespeare plays that
1: I have done. Yeah, it's a real powerhouse role. Uh, Amazing stuff to work with. You really were given a lot to work with and you made just an amazing thing out of all of it. So. Yeah, I still can't get over it. It was amazing. You've done so many other great voiceover roles too, but uh, Andrew Ryan is still just such a standout piece and it really began the argument as seeing video games as actual pieces of
0: art. Yes, absolutely. Not only the the uh, background drawings that, that are gorgeous, but the script itself is, is just exquisitely good. My voice actually is just a tiny bit rough this morning because yesterday I, I was uh, uh, again enacting a... a franchise that i've been working on for what 18 years called ratchet and clank um so i was playing my character nefarious and so which is a lot of shouting as opposed to Andrew ryan so there's a little bit of a of a i can feel it anyway uh a hoarseness in my voice uh, from working that yesterday
1: and since you brought up the theater stuff uh, i would like to ask us a little bit about that you know i normally uh, am, am far, farther on top of things when it comes to theater related questions but this time around i just had so many things about tv shows but uh, just you know off the top of my head favorite shakespeare play and favorite role to play in a Shakespeare play?
0: My favorite Shakespeare play, uh, you know, I usually answer that question by saying they're all my children. Um, But I guess in reference to my novel, which includes Twelfth Night, that must be subliminally my favorite because I took 20 years to write about it. So uh, Twelfth Night, I guess, although I'm very fond of Hamlet, not because it's Hamlet, but because I, I spent all last summer playing Polonius, and so uh, it's the um, it's the newest in my memory. Which part I would like to play? Well, I've never gotten an opportunity and I'm too old now to do it, but um, I always wanted to play Richard III. And ironically, bringing this conversation full circle, if you look at Last Outpost, you'll see that Letek has a slight hunch and he limps. Well, that's the closest I got to playing Richard III. Um, uh again wrong choices <laughs> wrong wrong choices but i always wanted to play richard I, i've played most of the roles now in the play richard iii but i've never played the type character
1: and now if you don't mind this uh this is really kind of unrelated to any kind of questions but uh, i've spoken to a few actors on this show who have worked in scenes with you and they've had some really nice things to say so i just wanted to share that with you uh juliana donald she was with you in the episode profit motive uh she described you as being a very reactive Actor, and especially when now you've told us about how hard it was to hear in the ears. It's even more amazing just to understand how reactive and receptive you were in your scenes with Juliana and uh, Phil Morris, who was in the episode with you in uh, looking for Parmok in all the wrong places. He and said and we did an Seinfeld harder. together.
0: And we did Seinfeld together.
1: Yeah, he said you were you were wonderful to work with. The, the, the exact words I think were very giving and very generous. And so was he. Uh, lovely man.
0: Lovely, lovely man. We did several things together, so I remember him very fondly. And uh, uh, I hope someday, if it's possible, to get another chance to work with him again.
1: So of the many guest stars you've worked with on DS9, do you have one that you enjoyed work with the most?
0: Well, that's easy. The actors that I interacted with, you asked about guest stars. So uh, absolutely. Max Grubinczyk, Aaron Eisenberg, uh, Andy Robinson, um, uh, Jeffrey Combs, uh, you know, Cecily Adams. Those people that I was thrown with over and over and over again, a- absolutely adore them, adore them, uh, because we were a family and 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 it was great fun working with them. There were many guest stars, um, many guest stars. I, I, I'm, I'm now blanking on her name, uh, the lady I married in the House of Quark. Uh, Mary uh, Kay Adams. Mary Kay Adams. I loved Mary Kay Adams love Mary Kate Adams. And, uh, I'm glad we got to do at least two episodes together. Um, she, she just, I just adored with her. She was very giving, uh, responsive. Uh, I remember our first meeting, I had not met her. They brought her on stage. They said, okay, let's just rehearse this scene. And she grabbed me by the rep- lapels. I had not met her. I mean, this was our first meeting. She grabbed me by the lapels and and pushed me up against the, the back of the, the front of the bar. And, um, I thought, ah, this is a woman to reckon with. <laughs> um, I just adored her after that. Absolutely. But all, all the guest stars that I, that I continually worked with, they're still good friends. We mourned the passing of Aaron Eisenberg, um, because it's my wife's birthday today. She got a, uh, a, a wonderful note from Max Grudenshek who lives out in Austria. Um, and, uh, they're dear, dear friends. They are family to me, very much so. I've had
1: the pleasure of speaking to both Chase Masterson and Max Grenchik recently, and it really does feel like it was legitimately just one big family. You know, you guys, Cecily Adams, Aaron Eisenberg, it was really the first Ferengi family.
0: We, we were, uh, what Deep Space Nine, what what TNG did for the Klingons, uh, Deep Space Nine did for the Ferengi. Thank you. Thank you very much to Michael Piller and Rick Baer who decided that they would take these one dimensional characters, these things called Ferengi and make one of them, a series regular on deep space nine. Um, that must've taken a lot of balls and there must've been huge conflict and conversations about it. Uh, Ira has once shared with me that he was against it. He, he did not think the Ferengi should be in deep space nine. Um, uh, granted he wrote most of the Ferengi episodes, but um, I'm, I'm enormously grateful. And, and again, what? Because on on the original show, um, the Klingons were pretty much one-dimensional villains, and on TNG, the Ferengi were one-dimensional comics, clowns. So um, uh, it's amazing that they took that huge leap of faith to do that.
1: I always found Deep Space Nine to be interesting too, because you know we talk about how that's the first Star Trek show to have an overarching theme throughout all seven seasons, but I think the one thing that you know gets overlooked among this whole giant story. Is that really Deep Space Nine is the story of family, and in this case, it's you know we will talk about the Ferengi's. Uh, we're watching the Max Kerdenciac and Quark, and you know all these guys just expanding from how they are from day one to where they go to the end of the series. It's it's a pretty amazing thing, and I've always found that uh, very fascinating with Deep Space Nine in particular.
0: Right, uh, I think I think Michael and Rick and Ira were very much interested in family, not just with the Ferengi, but of course the opening story is about a father and son relationship in the first episode and continues for the next seven years. Uh, Many families are introduced during the course of our uh, span of Deep Space Nine. Family was, it was very important to our creators and and I believe to our fans as well, because, because one of the great things about the popularity of Deep Space Nine is that it continues unabated 20, 25 years after we shot the episodes. Some of the other shows, In my humble opinion, granted, very biased, uh, is those stories become a little dated. But because we were always talking about family and interpersonal relationships, which never grows old, um, our stories, I think, still have a a punch to them.
1: So, by the way, unrelated to Star Trek now entirely, one of the shows that I was a big fan of was Martial Law. And (laughs) you did an episode... And yeah, this is, this is what we do on Trek and Untold, Darwin. We go way back and dig up all these things. I was going to ask you about Arena. I'm going to save that for another day. But oh. I want to ask you about Martial Law, because I just found out you were on Martial Law in the episode called Samo Blamo. You right. were the explosive experts, uh, Daniel Darius. Uh, you got to work with Samo. I, I, I love Samo Hung. I love his work. Uh, I'm just curious if you have any memories on set of being on Martial Law.
0: Yeah, I do, actually. That's why there was a big smile on my face when you brought it up. Yeah. Um, that was uh, one of the most interesting uh, sets I was ever on uh, because uh, S- Sam was the name of the, of the lead actor. He's Chinese. English was not his first language. English was not his second language. and English was not his third language. Um, and we would do take after take after take. He had, a, he had an earpiece in his ear and his wife would say the English lines that he had to say. And when we finally got a take where it sounded like it was real English, no matter how good or bad it was, that's the one they kept. And we moved on. Um, So that was a really sort of wonderfully uh, interesting and and, uh, eccentric show to be on because it wasn't about looking for the best take. He was looking for the one take that was perhaps that was closest to English.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of classic films. I'll, I love talking about Orson Welles. I mentioned Cocteau earlier. There's so many classic filmmakers I could talk about, but believe it or not, one of my favorites. You know, he's up there with Kurosawa. It actually is Sam Hung as a director. I find his work very amazing and his stunt coordination also just flawless and and brilliant storytelling within those fight scenes too. Uh, did you get a sense of any of that when you were working with him?
0: No, uh, I don't. I didn't have those kind of scenes with him. Um, uh, mostly. We would just walk and talk is what we call it on TV. Uh, you speak and you have some walking and 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 you're you're pushing the plot and 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 the, and the episode along. No, I, I didn't have anything like that. So I've got a
1: question from an Instagram user named Seventeen Zero One Zeta, and they would like to know if when Deep Space Nine was over, did you get to take home any souvenirs?
0: Unlike the rest of my crew, whether it was the actors or the stagehands or or the or the designers. Um, I did not take home anything from the set. Nothing. Why? When the seven years was over, I still vividly remembered my first walking onto the promenade on Soundstage 7 and being gobsmacked by the look of it. It it was an e-ride from Disneyland. It, it, It was gorgeous. It was unlike any set I'd ever been on before. Most sets are chopped up so that, Uh, and the infirmary is in one corner of the soundstage. The the bridge is in another corner of this, you know, there's no connecting the two. Uh, Yes, there's a little hallway that you can show the connection on camera, but they're not really connected by a hallway, they're not. On the promenade on soundstage seven, everything was exactly the way you saw it uh, on TV. So when you walked in the door out of the sunlight into the dark with the lights on on the set, Uh, there it was. There it was, Deep Space Nine. Exactly everything was where it should be. Whatever it took to walk from Quarks to Odo's, that's what it took. That's the reality of it. So why do I tell you this? Because I still remembered that moment when I walked on the set and I did not in any way want to disfigure that memory. I did not want to see the promenade being taken apart. I did not want to have that memory in my head. So I forwent going back and, you know, with screwdrivers and hammers like my good friend, Renee did um, and take as much as he possibly could. A lot of people did. that. Um, but so I didn't take anything. Doug Drexel, who was one of the uh, set designers on the show, heard about this and you can't see it from where you are but right over my head there's a little artifact from quarks that was given me so i have something from quarks but it's not something that i took it's something that was gifted me which
1: thing was that if you can tell us
0: um it's just a pediment uh from quarks Bar. it's, it's just something part of the architectural design of quarks bar um it's it's about that big and this wide Uh, You know what? It won't take me a second. Hold on. So as I said, it's just a pediment. It's just a corner piece of of something. Um, And that's all I have. And and a lot of good memories, a lot of good memories.
1: So we know all about the rules of acquisition and we know Max Kredencik knows those by heart also. But uh, for you, for you, Armand Sherman, what rules
0: do you live life by? I'm not religious, but because I'm a classical actor and a classical scholar, uh, the Bible means a great, well, it's an enormous reference book for me, because a lot of classical materials reference the Bible, and certainly the Elizabethans that I've studied all my life were very much affected by the Bible. So I I think subliminally and subconsciously uh, I try to live by uh, the morals that are they're taught not only in the Old Testament but also in the New Testament, uh, mercy. Grace, compassion, all taught in the New Testament, justice, obedience taught in the Old Testament. I think those are part and parcel of, of what I believe.
1: One last thing about d Space Nine, and we'll move on. I'm curious now also for yourself as an actor, as this person who's so deep in Shakespeare especially, was there a moment for you where you were doing a scene as Quark, where it just read very much as you and is a monologue or a scene that just has always stuck with you as one that you've remembered as just one that just felt very truthful? and very much uh, exposing Armin Shimmerman almost underneath
0: it. Well, there are several of those. There wasn't just one. There were many. There was an episode, and you'll have to help me with this. I don't remember the title. It, it was where um, Quark is dealing with Moogie. It's one that uh, Alexander Sadig directed. And, um, and we played the scene, Cecily and I, Moogie and Quark, Um, As though it was a real sort of family situation, in which case I was a son who was buckling under the authority of his mother. She was a mother dealing with a wayward son and it got, it got very, um, what's the word, um, involved convoluted uh the word i'm looking for isn't this word but it got very dark got very dark but truthful and i and i thought i'm i'm really dealing with my relationship with my real mother in this scene uh which was a wonderful one but one of conflict and uh and and when the powers of be, Ira, Rick, everybody else, when they saw the dailies, they said to Sid, no, that's not what we want. This has got to be a funny scene. And so we had to redo it and uh, with much more comedy infused into it. But I always remember that day shooting that scene. And, and that was that was a very, very much arming, acting out his... his inner Armin, uh, as opposed to Cork doing it. And then we, when we did it as a comic scene, it was, we went back to Cork. So.
1: so one last time now for our audience out there who's watching and listening to this episode, how can they get a copy of your new book?
0: Well, uh, there are two ways to do it. I'll, I, You can either go to my website, which is relatively easy to remember. It's my name, www.ArminShimmerman. Be careful of the M's. Uh, there's only one in the middle of my name armandschimmerman.com. If you hit the button that's, once you get there, if you hit the button that says shop, it will give you a link to my publisher, Jumpmaster Press, uh, where you can go and purchase the book. Uh, Or you can skip my website and go directly to www.jumpmasterpress.com. That's the name of the publishing company. And you will find uh, my book being hawked there. It is again, Illyria. Uh, book one is called Betrayal of Angels. Um, I believe that there are three formats. I believe the paperback, and it's a big book. I should have it with me, but I don't. The paperback is uh, is fifteen dollars. I believe the hard, cup, hard to cover is twenty dollars. And for those who, you know where that might be a little too expensive, we also have an e reader copy, which I believe is like five dollars. So, um, and, and for those who may be watching this program from outside of the United States, uh, there are shipping costs. I understand, uh, in shipping the hardcover and the paperback, which are added to those costs, but, um, but the ebook should be, you know, should be still be $5. There shouldn't be any shipping costs to to shipping the ebook. A lot of people like myself don't like to read a book, uh, on their computer, but, um, but if you do, and if you want to read it, and I really do recommend it, uh, Matthew, you've been very kind about saying that the little you've read of it, uh, it has fascinated you. Everyone who has read it um, uh, agrees with you, whether it's uh, Rick Berman, Ira Baer. Uh, uh, I, I talked about Beauty and the Beast, the showrunner for, for Beauty and the Beast says read parts of it. He, too, uh, is, is uh, said it's very well written. Uh, his name, by the way, is, is George R. R. Martin. Um, so, uh, getting a good review from George is a, is a good thing.
1: Again, folks, that book is Illyria, Betrayal of Angels. We're going to have links for all that in the show notes. So make sure you check that out. If you're interested in picking up a copy of this book, I definitely recommend it. So last thing today, Armin, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe?
0: There's an easy quark answer I can give you. Uh, I will say it and then I'll get into the deeper answer, uh, it's being financially solvent uh, because not only did I have seven years of work, but as everyone knows, that conventions are the gift to keep on giving. So uh, that's that's the quark answer. Uh, the deeper, much more important answer is that I am part of a franchise that offers hope to the world. That says we humans can do a better job, that we can work as a team to solve our, our problems and, and reach out to the stars and, and fulfill our wildest imaginations. That is, um, it's a great treasure. Uh, I, as an actor, you wonder, well, what's my point in society? What am I giving back to society? Um, Yes, we can give happiness. Yes, we can move people. Those are very important things. But to add to that, the ability to be part of something that perhaps will go on for a very, very long time and offer hope, as I said before, um, that's a great gift. It's a great blessing. And although I'm one of the comic characters on the show, I'm still part of the franchise and I'm still part of what makes Star Trek Star Trek.
1: And I I would never even denigrate the character of Quark as calling him just comic relief because really he's one of the most human characters out of everybody there. And that's thanks to your portrayal of him, your wonderful work that you did as Quark. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for putting all of yourself into that character, really making it more human than everybody else out there on the show.
0: Thank you. Um, as again, that was an epiphany about finding out I don't have to be an alien. I'm, I'm a human being in alien makeup. Um, and indeed, I'm glad you said it. There is no higher compliment that I could get ever from anyone about my work on Star Trek than what you just gave me, which is I was the most human, Quark was the most human character on the show. That, that is what I strive for.
1: So Armin, thank you again so much for being a guest on the show today. Thank you for telling us all about your new book and also sharing so many memories you've got from working on all the various Star Trek shows you've been on and also martial law. So yay for that. Uh, so I wish you much success on the book. By the time this airs, it'll be after your birthday, but happy early birthday to you. And we're, we're doing this episode today. Actually, it is uh, Kitty's birthday. So happy birthday to her. And you know, if you guys want to make sure you give a nice gift to both of them, go out and buy Elyria, Betrayal of Angels. So Armin, thank you so much again. Really, I can't get over this. You know, I, I feel so horrible that I was so afraid to talk to you was it four years ago? But I got an hour with you today and I couldn't be more grateful for all the time you've given me today. Don't
0: ever do that again. Uh, I'm always approachable. So is most of the people on our show. Most of the people. Well, next convention,
1: Star Trek Vegas 2021. I will see you there. I will meet you. I'm going to get myself an autograph and I'm going to make you sign that terrible cork action figure.
0: Uh, I'd rather sign a book, but okay. We'll do okay. both. We'll do both. Thanks a lot, Matt. Pleasure to be you.
1: So that was our chat with Armin Shimmerman, who was so gracious with his time and absolutely wonderful to speak with. I hope we can do it again sometime. And thanks again to all the listeners today who submitted questions for this episode. I'm sorry if we didn't get a chance to answer yours because there were so many today. So I hope that when we do one of these q and episodes again, you'll reach out to us and fingers crossed or whatever appendages you may have, depending on your species, that you'll be one of the questions that we ask that week. And of course, once again, we're going to have links to all of Armin's books in the show notes, including the Merchant Prince series and the first installment of Illyria. Now, we also didn't really talk much about it today, but Armin also wrote a Deep Space 9 novel called The 34th Rule. Co-written by David R. George III, this book was actually based on a pitch for a DS9 episode that was ultimately turned down. It's well worth hunting down and concerns Quark in the middle of a political crisis on Bajor that leads to him and many other Ferengi on the planet being wrongfully imprisoned. The story was inspired by George DeKay's experiences in the internment camps during World War II and would have been a very good episode on the show, but to be honest, I think becoming a book may have actually been the best thing that happened to this because it's a very deep tale and some of that requires, I think, a little bit more than 55 minutes to tell the entire story. And by the way, Armin's book led the way for another actor-based DS9 novel, that one being Andrew Robinson's A Stitch in Time, but that's a story for another episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash Trek check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have, or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash trekuntold any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this on the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that. And we also thank you for, again, choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask me booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity at Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, this has been Trek Untold, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.